Well, this weekend, our college students, young adults and young marrieds, enjoyed a conference here at Cross and Crown Church called the Truth Summit. There was one session Friday night. There were, I think, four sessions yesterday, and we had a Q&A panel this morning uh, before the service. I'm so encouraged by these young people and their heart for the Lord, their hunger for the truth of God's Word. To see 60 or 70 of our young people gather together for worship and teaching and Christian fellowship is so great to see on a weekend, on a summer weekend when they could have done anything else, they came here and sat under the teaching of God's Word. And so I just commend you folks who came and uh, trust it was a blessing. And the theme this weekend of the Truth Summit has been Unmasking Cultural Lies. And each session, they've gathered together to consider a different cultural lie from a biblical perspective. Lies like these. Follow your heart. Or your worth is based on your success. Or your sexuality should be determined by your feelings. All of these cultural lies were addressed this weekend and more, and they were confronted with the Word of God. This morning I'm delivering what is, in effect, the closing message of this conference, and you're all included in it. So thanks for coming to the conference. (laughs) Don't worry that you haven't attended the rest of it. Uh, You don't have to have heard any of the rest of the conference to follow along with me this morning. This is a, uh, a meal that's been prepared especially for you, all right? So all you have to do is listen and engage your heart. It's a message from God, and I think it's a message we all need to hear. In addressing the theme of cultural lies this morning, we'll be delaying our conclusion of the book of Titus until next week, Lord willing. This morning, I want to lead us from God's Word and talk about identifying and defeating cultural lies. And I want to do this this morning by looking together at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. But before we go there, and before I read that passage for us, I want to set the table just a little bit. Every human culture has cultural lies embedded within it. Every human culture has certain cultural lies embedded within it. And that is because every human culture is populated by fallen human beings. Fallen, sinful human beings whose thinking and reasoning have been warped and distorted in their view of God. They have a distorted view of themselves and a distorted view of the world around them. And the result of these distorted views of God, of self, and the world around us is a distorted culture. A warped culture. A culture that fails to view God rightly, fails to view humanity rightly, and fails to view the world around us rightly. This produces, naturally, certain cultural lies. Commonly accepted ideas, commonly accepted values and philosophies, that are in conflict with what God has revealed to us in His Word. 
Whenever our own cultures, ideas, values, and philosophies are in conflict with God's word, we can be sure that cultural lies are present. Let me give you a few examples of some of our own cultural lies. You've already heard a few of them this morning as I was sharing some of the topics that were covered in the Truth Summit this weekend. Let me give you a few more. Here's a cultural lie. Scientific naturalism. Scientific naturalism. That, of course, is the belief that everything in the universe is natural. Every law, every force, every event is governed by strictly natural processes without exception. Naturalism, by its very name, rules out the possibility of anything supernatural existing or even ever occurring. Listen to author Philip Johnson as he summarizes scientific naturalism. He says, Naturalism assumes the entire realm of nature to be a closed system of material causes and effects which cannot be influenced by anything from outside. There is nothing outside of the physical universe we inhabit. There's nothing more, there's nothing beyond this material natural universe so the idea of a supernatural god who supernaturally creates the universe is completely off the table that is just not a consideration it's a non-starter for them and of course this is a belief i would say a cultural lie that is so embedded in the culture that any school just about in this country that you choose to go to, this is what you're going to be taught. Any university, certainly any secular, secular university, this is what you're going to be taught. The idea of miracles, angels, heaven, hell, resurrection from the dead, this is the stuff of fairy tales. It's dismissed as mere myth and legend. Naturalism is summarized well in the first lines of John Lennon's song, Imagine. One of his worst. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That is the cultural lie of scientific naturalism made pretty in a poem with pretty music to accompany it. But it doesn't change the ugliness of the lie. Here's another one. Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, another cultural lie. This is the idea that you've got to be true to yourself and follow your heart. It's the idea that to live the most authentic life, you must align the circumstances of your life with your deepest desires and give outward expression, outward visible expression, to those inward desires. And therefore, expressive individualism doesn't have much time for biblical concepts like self-denial, 
Concepts like objective truth that is outside of us and authoritatively over us. Doesn't have much time for a concept like accountability to the God who made you. Here's another one, hedonism. It's the belief that the only good in life is pleasure. And that pain is the only evil. Therefore, pleasure is to be pursued and maximized in one's life, and pain is to be avoided at all costs. Our culture is, by and large, a hedonistic culture. It's one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel gets so much traction in our own culture. Maximize blessing. Minimize pain. God wants me to be healthy. He wants me to be wealthy. He wants me to be a success and to experience all the pleasures of this world. Or perhaps about, how about one cultural lie that hits maybe a little bit closer to home? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is the belief in a God who created and ordered the world, but who is not intimately involved in the affairs of life. He is not intimately involved in your everyday decisions and your everyday circumstances. God kind of started things and got it rolling, created it all, but then sort of stepped out back. That's the deism part. It places great emphasis upon being a good moral person with the goal of living a good and happy life. That's the moralistic part. It is the belief that God wants me to live morally and He wants me to be happy. That's the therapeutic part. Sociologist Christian Smith, who helped to identify this belief system and coined the name, suggests that moralistic therapeutic deism is the de facto dominant religion among contemporary teenagers in the United States. You want to know what teenagers believe about God, theology, salvation, what this life is all about? This is it. God is not involved in my day-to-day activities. He's not really even that interested in it. He simply wants me to live a moral life, and He wants me to be happy. To be a good little boy or girl, and to get the things that I want out of life. Christian Smith goes on to explain it this way. This is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering or basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice, etc. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. Now these are all cultural lies. They are lies put forward as the truth, put forward as the way to live, put forward as what to believe, 
And they are embedded, enmeshed in our culture, oftentimes in ways that are difficult for us to detect and discern. Many times, they may even have elements of truth to them, but that truth is oftentimes used in order to disguise the lie. To a fish, a fishing lure looks like lunch, but what looks to be reality actually hides a hook. So this morning, we're going to look at God's Word to help us in identifying and defeating cultural lies. So look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read for us from verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian believers, says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for giving us the light of your word in the midst of a darkened world full of all kinds of lies and half-truths. We need greater discernment to live wisely, to live circumspectly. Lord, we want to discern the cultural lies in our own culture, in our own relationships and families. Help us, Lord, to live more consistently, to believe more consistently according to your word, according to your truth. Refine us, Lord. May our thinking and living always be transformed by your word and not conformed after the pattern of this age. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to share with you from this text five strategies for identifying and defeating cultural lies. Five strategies for identifying first and then defeating cultural lies. First of all, we've got to be on the lookout for cultural lies around us. Be on the lookout for cultural lies around you. Paul, throughout this passage, understands that there are cultural lies all around the Corinthian church. In fact, inside the Corinthian church, because the Corinthian believers are Corinthian people. They grew up in that culture. They're local boys and girls. They're local men and women. And though they have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, nevertheless, they have brought into the church some of their old ways of thinking, some of their old ways of living, and they haven't been fully and finally transformed yet. And so Paul understands that there are cultural lies all around. These cultural lies come in many forms. He describes these lies with plural nouns. He talks about fortresses and speculations in this passage. There's not just one lie, but there are many lies that come in many different varieties. 
even as we've seen already this morning as I've walked us through a few of those. This shouldn't surprise us since we know from the Bible that the whole world lies under the power of Satan, the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. And we know that as Jesus said, Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. John 8, 44. From the very beginning, Satan has been seeking to deceive and to distort the truth that God has revealed and lead people astray. Eve was deceived by Satan in the garden, probably within days or maybe weeks of creation. Dare I say hours? Who knows? We're not told how long that blessed paradise lasted before sin entered and destroyed and ruined so much. But Eve was deceived by Satan. Take, hold your place here in 2 Corinthians. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3, the very front of your Bibles. Genesis 3. Let's just be reminded of what our enemy has been up to since the very beginning. Genesis 3. God has created everything. He's created it and called it very good. He created mankind in His image and according to His likeness. He created man without sin. So man was perfect. Man and woman. And then we're introduced in Genesis 3, 1 to a, another character. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There in the garden, in paradise, in perfect circumstances, perfect conditions, there is Satan. Tempting, deceiving, trying to pull people away, trying to lure them in with a lie. Notice he places seeds of doubt. He says, hath God said? Did God really say that? Are you sure you heard it correctly? Surely that's not what God meant. Placing seeds of doubt. Next, we see him directly contradicting the word of God. You will surely not die. God said you would die, but he's lying. You're not going to die. In fact, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Next, he calls into question God's goodness. For God knows in the day you eat from it, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want competition. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to experience what he experiences. He's keeping something good from you. Questioning God's goodness. And then finally, mixing error with truth. Your eyes will be open, which is true. <laughs> and you will be like God, which is not true. Mixing truth with error. So that is what Satan's been doing from the very beginning of creation. Seeking to deceive people and distort the truth and lead them astray and place within them seeds of doubt. 
directly contradicting God, calling into question His goodness, mixing error and truth. In 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 2, rather, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, Paul mentions the importance of not being ignorant of Satan's schemes, Satan's devices. We need to be aware of our enemy who's always spewing out lies, who's always peddling propaganda, who's always spreading misinformation. And so we need to have a wartime footing in terms of our mindset and be looking for the ways that the enemy is trying to gain an inroad, a foothold. We see an early example of a cultural lie taking root over an entire people in Genesis 11. So if you were in Genesis 3, just go a few chapters to your right there to Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. You know that story. God had commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to spread out over the face of the earth, Genesis 1.28. But what happened? The people didn't spread out. They didn't want to spread out. Instead, they wanted to stay together. They wanted to huddle together. They thought there was greater protection for them, greater blessing for them to deny God's word, to disobey God's word, and to do it their own way. So Genesis 11.4 says, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Otherwise, we'll do exactly what God commanded us to. In their pride, they defied God's clear command to fill the earth, to spread out and subdue it. And so they sought to build a city and a great tower that would reach to the heavens and make a mighty name for themselves. They had embraced the cultural lie of human independence from Creator God. The cultural lie of self-sufficiency. They believed in their technology, in their skill, and in their social community. And they believed these things was better than what God had clearly commanded. And the result was God confused their language, scattered them over the face of the earth. Because they had embraced the cultural lie of independence from God, what they were unwilling to voluntarily do themselves, God accomplished linguistically. Confusing their language, causing them to divide up into groups according to language and to spread out then throughout the globe. Cultures around the world have done the same thing. They have persistently and repeatedly thrown up fortresses in opposition to God. Thrown up towers of pride in opposition to God. Fortresses and towers of religion, fortresses and towers of ideologies, fortresses and towers of belief systems that are in opposition to God. In a footnote of Calvin's commentary. This is what it says. The whole world is fortified against Christianity. And the nations of the earth have been engaged in little else than in raising and strengthening such strongholds for the space of 6,000 years. 
The building of strongholds in opposition to God goes on every day in every culture around the globe. And the reality is in our own culture that there are fortresses of cultural lies all around us. These cultural lies in all their varied forms are repeated to us day after day. Repeated to us in movies and music and social media and books, in the classroom, through commercials and billboards and influencers, through casual conversations at work or around the dinner table at home. And so the first strategy for identifying and defeating cultural lies is to be on the lookout for them. To be an active, discerning listener and not merely a passive consumer of information. Don't be buying whatever the culture is selling. Throughout this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul employs the metaphor of a fortress. A fortress of cultural lies that has been raised up in opposition to God. And I love what Proverbs 21.22 says about this. Proverbs 21.22 says this, A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and he brings down the stronghold in which they trust. May the Lord make us wise men and women who in the midst of the cities in which we live bring down the strongholds that are all around us. If we're going to be wise, we've got to become better at discerning the fortresses of belief behind which people around us are living and hiding. While at the same time being careful not to adopt the cultural lies ourselves. That's the danger of living in culture. You can't not live in culture unless you go live in a cave somewhere. Culture is just the expression of a group of people. The common expression of a, of a gathered group. We've got to be in the culture. But we don't have to adopt all that the culture adopts. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it. Be careful. Go to great pains. Make certain that no one takes you captive through these cultural lies. So we're to listen with biblical discernment. We set a guard, as it were, over our eye gate and our ear gate. We ask good questions. What message is this song conveying? What worldview is it coming from? What is the message this movie is trying to get across to me? What does my friend really mean when he says, I've got to find my own truth. Or, I just know that God wants me to be happy. 
What cultural lies might be being embraced in these statements? What cultural lies might be embedded in this artistic expression? We need to realize that we are bombarded with cultural lies every day. Some are more subtle. Some are more blatant. Some are outright lies. Some are mixed with aspects of the truth. But be on the lookout and be aware. This is the first step in making sure that we are not slowly embracing these cultural lies ourselves. And it's the first step toward defeating these cultural lies. All right, so secondly... Realize we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Realize we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Sometimes in the Bible, the word flesh is used to refer to our unredeemed humanness. That fallen part of us that is still waiting to be finally and fully renewed and remade. But here, Paul uses flesh in the sense of our mortality and his own mortality. His physical humanness. He's using it in the sense that we are all susceptible as human beings to the laws and limits which are common to human beings. Paul is saying, look, I'm not a God. I'm not some supernatural being. I'm just a man like you. I put my toga on the same way you do. I'm a human being of physical flesh and blood with all the limitations and weaknesses that go along with it. But even though that is true, Paul says, He goes on to say that he does not war according to the flesh. He doesn't use merely human solutions. Paul is talking here about spiritual warfare. While he's just a man, subject to all the laws and limits of human physical experience, the war he is involved in is not according to the flesh. A war not of physical swords and spears, but of spiritual realities. A warfare of ideas and beliefs. A warfare between truth and lies, between good and evil, between heaven and hell. A war waged not on the field of battle, but one that is waged cosmically and in the human heart and mind. We know Paul said to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul is saying here that the war he is engaged in is a spiritual war. And it's a war that is waged not according to human methods. not according to merely human values. When it comes down to it, we're not just trying to win arguments or use mere human reasoning because there is a spiritual dimension 
where this war is being waged. A war waged both in the unseen realm of spirit beings and in the unseen realm of the human heart. This means that we'll need to use spiritual weapons to fight this spiritual battle. We're not going at this by comparing resumes or educational degrees as though that was the solution. No, we're going about this spiritually, recognizing we're involved in a spiritual battle and therefore it requires spiritual strategies and spiritual weapons. That brings us to our third strategy. Understand that our weapons are divinely powerful. Now throughout this passage, as you can see, Paul is using the metaphor of a battle with fortresses and weapons and captives taken in battle and made to submit to the superior force. In fact, Paul is describing the three stages of ancient siege warfare. And just then, all the ten-year-old boys woke up. (laughs) Ancient siege warfare. When a city was under threat, the population of that city would often flee and seek safety behind the walls of the city that they had constructed for just such an occasion. And this had actually happened to the Greek city of Corinth when the Romans laid siege to it in 146 B.C. So it's a fitting metaphor, one that was close to home to the Corinthians. They knew about siege warfare. They knew about city walls and fortresses and lofty ramparts put up as a defense. So Paul pictures himself here and all Christians as laying siege to these defensive spiritual walls. In siege warfare, the invading army, the invading general, would seek to destroy the walls or in some other way breach the walls so that they could gain access to the city and defeat their enemy. Having destroyed the walls, effectively defeating the enemy, they would then take the citizens of the city captive. Finally, they would punish those who resisted by making them publicly display their submission. So the three stages of siege warfare presented here are destroying fortresses, taking captives, and punishing the disobedient and the non-submissive. Paul says in verse 4 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are not physical, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now all kinds of machines and devices and strategies were used in siege warfare in seeking to breach a city wall. But Paul says here our weapons are not physical. Our weapons are not battering rams or catapults or siege towers, but they are divinely powerful nonetheless for the destruction of spiritual fortresses. So what is this spiritual weaponry that Paul has in mind here? Well, he doesn't specify, but clearly chief among them is the Holy Spirit. Because in contrast to the flesh, which he says his 
warfare is not according to the flesh. His weapons are not fleshly weapons. They are spiritual weapons. They are weapons of the Spirit. They are not visible, physical, tangible weapons. They are spiritual and invisible weapons. In Ephesians 6, 13 through 16, Paul talks about the importance of putting on the full armor of God. And he uses the metaphor of a, an outfitted Roman soldier as a metaphor for putting on this armor of God, the resources God has equipped us with to do spiritual battle. And the interesting thing about each piece of our spiritual armor is, is that it's all directly related to the gospel. To the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The great good news that's gone into all the world that no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter your station in life, God is offering you forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in His Son Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life and went to the cross and died a death as a substitute on your behalf. All of those Spiritual armor, parts of our armor relate back to the gospel itself. The gospel is that in which we stand. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is our defense. And so chief among our spiritual weapons are the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contained in God's word, which is the sword of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit. These two weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of spiritual forces and fortresses. And so, beloved, we have reason for confidence. Not self-confidence. We don't have reason for self-confidence. But we have reason for confidence. God-confidence. Confidence in the spiritual armory that God has supplied us with for this spiritual battle of ideas and beliefs. Our spiritual weapons are divinely powerful, Paul says. Divinely powerful because they are divinely designed and divinely wielded. It is the Spirit who is at work through His Word to bring down these fortresses to pull down these arguments and speculations. God has given us His Spirit and His Word, and these two weapons together are able to breach the tallest and thickest of spiritual walls. No one is too far gone from the reach of God's grace. Aren't you grateful for that? No one is walled off from the reach of God's grace. He can reach anyone, no matter what spiritual fortress they have erected to keep him out. Fourthly, affirm that God's truth brings down cultural lies. God's truth topples cultural fortresses. Paul says that these spiritual weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Destruction here is literally the pulling down or the tearing down of fortresses. 
He then in verse 5 expands upon this by saying we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. These fortresses that have been constructed and that Paul is destroying are said to be speculations. Speculations. What's he talking about? Speculations mean, mean simply cognitive reasoning. It's our thinking. More cynically, it can mean sophistry, which is a false argument intended to deceive. We talked about Romans 1 a few weeks ago, how God has revealed Himself in nature. It's evident for all to see, and yet we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We use sophistry. We create all kinds of false arguments based on error and untruths in order to dismiss God and His demands of us. And I think that's how Paul means it here. False arguments intended to deceive are destroyed, they're brought down, they're torn down by the power of God's Spirit and God's Word rightly wielded in the hand of God's servant. We're destroying cultural lies, in other words. He then adds that we're destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now this is broad and clearly means any claim or argument or belief system or value that is opposed to God, opposed to His Word, and opposed to His Gospel. Again, we're destroying cultural lies. Lies that are disguised as lofty ideas, as education, as enlightenment, as learning and knowledge. We've left the dark ages of religion behind us. and We're now in the new light of human learning. God's truth is able to destroy all spiritual fortresses, all false arguments intended to deceive and lead people astray, lofty ideas and arguments and ideologies that have been erected in opposition to God. Notice too here that the enemy is not the person. It's important. The thing that is pulled down here is not the person. The thing that is pulled down here is the ideology that the person believes in. It's the cultural falsehood that they have imbibed. This is the target. Unbelievers aren't our enemies. We love them. Maybe you're not a believer here today. We love you. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're sitting here listening to this. Please don't leave. We love that you're here. We love you. Our enemies are not unbelievers, but rather the ideologies, the belief systems that have walled off unbelievers from God's grace. And so we are, as Christians, God's siege warriors. (sighs) 
we are equipped with divinely powerful spiritual weapons which can breach any spiritual or ideological wall erected in opposition to God. So let's go. Let's go. With the Spirit of God in one hand and the Word of God in the other. Let's run to the wall. Let's have conversations with people. Respectful, loving, sincere conversations with people about what they believe and why. And share with them in the right time and the right place the hope we have in Christ. Believing that God's Spirit and God's Word are able to breach the wall they have thrown up and are hiding behind in opposition to God. Fifth and finally, remember that we are to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Paul continues here in the middle of verse 5, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the next stage of siege warfare, taking captives. The walls have been breached, and now it's time to take captives. And the captives being taken here are thoughts, mindsets, worldviews, ideologies, beliefs. And you're taking these thoughts captive. Look at verse 6. Paul says we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. What's Paul talking about there? Well, once Paul is convinced of the genuineness of the Corinthians' faith, based largely on how they respond to this letter, he will then punish any remaining rebels. Paul is saying that those who are connected to the church but who refuse to submit their thoughts to Christ are to be ultimately removed from the church and treated as unbelievers. Having breached the walls, Paul says we are taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. The thinking that has been opposed to God is now taken captive and it is placed in obedience to Christ. It is brought into alignment with what God has told us about Himself in His Word. That is the goal. It's the goal we have for ourselves that we ourselves would take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, our own thoughts our own beliefs, our own values, our own worldview. Take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's a lifelong process, beloved. That's the process of transformation. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's an ongoing process. It's the goal we have for ourselves to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And it's the goal we have for everyone we know and everyone we meet and even people we don't know. That they would be liberated from their current captivity and made captive to Christ. Liberated from Satan, liberated from guilt, liberated from death and fear of death. And brought into a new captivity. A new captivity that is ironically true freedom. For Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
There's a lot of people in this world that still need to be set free. Maybe there's some folks here this morning that still need to be set free. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Believe on me. And I will make you free. In the process of sharing the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit with those who are hiding behind walls they've built, in the process, let us make sure that we ourselves as Christians are not deceived. That we continually take every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ ultimately for His glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Lord, we are surrounded by cultural lies. The enemy is active, he is ever-present, and he is always sowing seeds of deceit. Help us to discern those lies, to see them for what they are, to turn away from them and believe the truth, to reject the lie and believe the truth. Help us to be men and women of your word, your word which is light and truth and life, your word which points us to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to have compassion for those around us who are still hiding behind the cultural ramparts and towers and fortresses they've constructed, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness so they will not have to answer to the God who made them. Give us compassion for them, love for them, burden for them. And help us to go forth and storm the walls, storm the gates with the Word of God in one hand and the Spirit of God in the other. Knowing that once those walls are breached, the captivity we have to offer them is a captivity unto freedom they've never known. Lord Jesus, we thank you for leading us into freedom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.